This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hey everybody, this is Phil Town. And this is Danielle Town. Welcome to the Invested Podcast, where we are basically figuring out how to invest like the very, very best investors in the world. And this, by the way, is not a broad group of people like we just did some encyclopedic view of the world of investing and went out and picked everybody who ever made money as an investor. And then we're exploring what they did. So you get completely confused. <laughs> That's not what we do here. Oh, that, that's not what we do? <laughs> no. We are highly focused on just a handful of the best investors in the world who happen to all invest the same way. Warren Buffett calls this group of people the super investors of Graham and Doddsville. And he means this relatively small handful of people who all follow more or less the teachings of Ben Graham. Um, and we would add to that the gurus, Charlie Munger and Warren Buffett, who have changed the idea of, of how an individual investor goes into the stock market and makes money. And it requires an education. So we've been at this for quite some time as I am educating my daughter, Danielle, who's now been at this long enough that she's starting to repay the favor and, and, and basically educate me <laughs> on a bunch of stuff. <laughs> so with that but, overly lengthy yeah, I've become too good of a student. <laughs> everybody who's been listening to 200 of these is just like, oh please just get on with it. All right, so we will. So we have been talking a lot about Tesla for the last I think four episodes. So a friend of mine the other day said to me, "So you guys seem obsessed with Tesla. Is Tesla the new Chipotle?" And I was like, um, it's definitely not the new Chipotle. Definitely not the new Chipotle. More like the new Las Vegas. <laughs> <laughs> we have on our agenda for Las Vegas type gambling addicts, it's Tesla and Bitcoin. You can <laughs> jump right in there and take your shot. <laughs> so we're going to move on from Tesla. Yep. And, uh, and just, just to summarize Tesla. I don't know about you, Danielle, but I really have no opinion. It's too hard. I just oh, don't. really? That's yeah, your takeaway. Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's too by too hard. I mean, I can't figure out what it's worth. I have no way to get an idea where it's going to be in ten years, and thus I have no way to know what to pay for it today to achieve my required fifteen percent per year return. I just I can't get there. I don't know how to figure it out. I don't know if they're going to be you know, worth hundreds of billions or worth nothing or I don't know. Oh, that's so interesting. It's too hard. Wait, okay. So I know I just said we're going to move on from Tesla, but now I want to uh -oh. just talk about, we won't talk about Tesla in particular, but just the definition of too hard, I think is super interesting. So for me, the way I think of too hard and for new people listening, this refers to Buffett's uh, box on his desk where he literally puts papers of companies that are too hard for him so that he remembers that there are companies that are just too hard to understand. And for me, 
too hard feels like I just can't even wrap my mind around what this company does. So that, oh. that to me is too hard. And what well, you're that's saying. That's certainly too hard. <laughs> you don't know what they do. Right. I don't know. That's what no, I'm that's saying. too hard. Whereas yeah. Tesla, I do understand what they do. I don't feel like it's too hard for me. Do I know where it's going to be in 10 years? No, definitely. I have no clue if that company is going to be like running the world or <laughs> including space or if it's going to be no longer existing. So to me, that's like, I, this is just, I don't know, just an interesting thought exercise about too hard because to me, that doesn't feel like it's too hard. It just feels like I can't predict it well enough, but I can understand that they make cars and they're not profitable with those cars and they're trying to introduce electric cars to the market and they've been very successful at that. And I'm not sure what's going to happen with all of that, but I can understand it. Well, you're making an extra box on the desk and my desk doesn't have enough room for two boxes. So oh, really? What's I'm staying box? with the just two. I don't actually have a too hard box because what we do is we put um, our analysis into a, a binder and then we just note on it that it's too hard goes on the shelf. So we don't do a box that says, um, I don't, it's like too hard is the things I don't understand um, versus what was the other one? What were you thinking that you'd felt about Tesla? That's what I, oh, it, I just can't predict it. Oh, unpredictable. So we yeah. need another box called unpredictable. Well, unpredictable. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Which is too fine of a slice. I, I just feel like if I can't, if it's not predictable, it's not predictable because it's too hard to predict it. Yeah. It just doesn't, you just don't have enough elements. So for me, too hard encompasses both of those things, companies I don't understand. And honestly, in 40, almost 40 years of doing this, um, if you dig hard enough, you can understand most things if you really work at it, right? Yeah, of course, if you really work at it. And so really, a lot of these things that are too hard come down to just not being able to predict what they're going to do. You don't have enough information about the future, about the competition, about the industry, um, about what's going on in management. I mean, I, you know, just too hard. Mm -hmm. So I would keep it simple, honey. That just makes say, a lot of sense. Just, yeah. You know, keep it simple. Keep it simple. Which isn't what we were going to talk about today, was it? No. So what we want to talk about today is something that's been in the news a ton and I, I would say even getting out of the financial news and into like kind of the regular business news, which is all these huge companies with all this extra money lying around and they're using it to buy back their own stock. And this has become a big thing to the point that politicians are even talking about maybe outlawing that companies should be able to do that. And it's just gone massive. And so we talked about stock buybacks a long time ago as an option for what companies can do with their extra cash. So they can uh, issue dividends, which many companies do. They could buy back their own stock, which is what we're going to talk about. And they could just keep it and use it for acquiring other companies or investing in the business or doing research and development, really just using it internally, however they think is best. Those are kind of the three buckets. Is that right? Yeah. And I, and I just, not that we would ever go on a tangent here, but yeah, I'm, I just was 
thinking about the impact of government officials, right, on the marketplace and the idea that um, this, there are now people who are, I think some people are running for president, like maybe Elizabeth Warren for in particular, who have policies that they want to implement at the federal government level um, that would make things, quote, fairer uh, for shareholders um, of public companies. And, you know, as heartfelt as those things are, and they are heartfelt and they are problems, solving those problems with government edicts and with regulations is usually, in my experience anyway, creates unforeseen problems. It has unintended consequences. And some of those things are not even unforeseen. I mean, as soon as you, I'll give you an example, honey. In 1992 or 93, um, Congress passed a law under Bill Clinton's administration to fix the problem of CEOs paying too much money to themselves. Mm -hmm. Right? So you have these boards of directors that are just a bunch of heinous bastards who get $250,000 a year. Daniel's laughing. (laughs) They get $250,000. They're not all heinous bastards. There are some very nice people there. In fact, probably all of them are extremely nice and none of them are actually heinous bastards. But you know what? They're basically on the take. They vote for large compensation to executives. Yeah, they're they're voting for themselves to, to keep getting a quarter million dollars a year. And anybody for whom a quarter million dollars a year is a lot of money is not independent and free thinking. Mm -hmm. They are under the thumb of the CEO who's paying them. And that's really the situation on most boards of America, which leads us to a problem is that management, the way it's structured for public corporations, the boards of directors do not actually act as fiduciaries for the owners of the company who are the shareholders. They act as a kind of a, at best, a go-between between management and and the and the shareholders but because the shareholders are so diversified you know 10,000 100,000 you know yeah. million shareholders that that having a single voice is almost impossible and so public companies are operated by the boards dramatically different than a company that is owned by one person who has a board of directors yep very so true. for example if Warren Buffett owned a company through Berkshire and it was a public company and he owned all of it, right? It wouldn't be public anymore, but let's just say he did. Then it's impossible to imagine that company going into chapter 11 bankruptcy, for example, um, against Buffett's wishes. He would simply fire the board if they were so crazy as to vote that way. Um, he would simply call a shareholders meeting, fire the board, put a new board in that would do what he wanted. And the board would execute that and he would go on down about his business. But when there's 10,000 shareholders, the board operates as if they're the owners of the business and don't they don't respond to shareholders often. So we have a real problem there, and Elizabeth Warren is trying to address it. Her way of addressing it is completely wrong and and really dangerous and about to create enormous, enormous problems in in uh, the way companies work. So the solution is worse than the problem. But well, let's talk about the problem before we get into solutions. Okay, so so when it comes to um these problems of, of the boards not operating in favor of, of the owners, the first level problem is that many CEOs don't think that the people who own the shares of the company are actually the owners. Totally agree. Yeah. Blows my mind. And I don't think that they like actually think that when they think it out, because I mean, it's exactly what you just said. You take 
thousands and thousands of little tiny shareholders and some big ones, right? In the public markets, often like a big institutional investor will own a bunch of a company, but mostly it's small and nobody owns such a large amount, such a big percentage that they really have a lot of control usually. And so boards start to feel like they run the company and they are the owners, even though they're not. But if, as you said, all of those people all went and sold to one person, it's very clear that that person is the owner of the company. If they sold all of their Apple shares to me and I own Apple now and I'm the only owner and I own 100%, I have a lot of power. I own that company. There's no question about that. But when nobody would argue that. Exactly. But when it's split up amongst a lot of different thousands and thousands of people and entities, it becomes it becomes unclear. It does. And people, um, many shareholders don't vote. Many shareholders don't pay attention to what's happening in that company. They don't behave like owners. And I think that's a really endemic problem to our system. People, and this is what I've learned so much from talking about this with you is that as a shareholder, you are an owner. Now, I knew that from my corporate law class in law school, but you don't feel like that owning stock in a company through your own private brokerage account. You just don't feel like an owner. You don't feel like you have any power. Most people don't bother to even read the proxy statements or vote on anything because it's just, it's just a, it's a speculation, as you always say. And I think that that it, the problem is not just on one side, in my opinion, it's on both sides. Well, if you think about how America evolved out of monarchy, the, the argument that voters have no power would look incredibly a lot like the argument that shareholders have no power. Great point. Yes. I mean, shoot, if that was true, then the idea of a democracy should never have been put out there, you know, because Many people are completely uneducated, completely apathetic. Most people don't vote at all in elections. It's almost identically, it's certainly parallel to the idea of shareholders not being the owners. And and so you can see how it would quickly evolve that there should be some big brother up there who is in charge of everything. And of course, the monarchy existed for that purpose. And um, and when And what we see today, actually, in politics is a leaning back toward the idea that in order to have fairness, in order to have social justice, you have to have a kind of a, a, a very powerful federal organization that's going to look over everyone, that they can't leave this to the, the hoi polloi to make determinations. It just doesn't work. And that's the same argument that, of course, boards of directors and management would give for they why do. they should feel like the owners aren't really the that's owners. True. The owners are really the people who are working there. So the owners I, don't know enough. The owners aren't educated enough. They're not sophisticated investors. They're not long-term really know, thinkers. Not yeah, long-term. They don't really know enough about what's happening to make an educated vote. All That's of which is argument. basically true. Yeah. And in fact, the owners that are educated and do understand investing often only have a small percentage of their capital in a company. So this would be like fund managers. They have such a small piece, maybe a quarter of a percent or half a percent of their fund is in this one company. So as long as everything doesn't go down the, the, the stream, then the whole thing works. And, and this one company can fail and I'm fine. 
So I don't need to pay that much attention. And they don't also pay that much attention. Even the professionals. Yeah. Even the professionals. And so you can see how the problem has evolved. We just think about government, right? It just comes to be the same thing. And of course, what we're trying to do is be educated as investors and act like owners Mm -hmm. because we are actually the owners of the company. I, I just have to tell you that I had a conversation with a really good friend of mine who runs a very significant company, public company. And um, he said, I might even change the gender here. It might be a he, it might be a she. You don't know. So I'm hiding this. Lord, could you be any more obvious? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so she said. <laughs> I said, yep. I said, I said something about how, you know, the that what we do in in educating our in, investors is to teach them that they're the owners. And she's oh. Well, they're a stakeholder. I said, "Oh yeah, for sure, a significant stakeholder." And and the in other the stakeholders sense of like would, owning. Yeah, right. So it said the other, and we discussed what the other stakeholders are. Okay, well, the environment's a stakeholder, right? And the the community's a stakeholder, and the suppliers are stakeholders, and the employees are stakeholders, and the yeah, and so I the share. I, I I do like that perspective. I, I agree too. with the stakeholder perspective. I think it's important. Yeah, but one of the but but the jar that we're in is the owner jar. Mm -hmm. And as the owners of the business, we can, if we were a single owner, we could exhibit, we could influence quite a lot how much the company was concerned with the other stakeholders. Might not be concerned at all. We might just enslave our employees, destroy the environment, right? I mean, people have done this who Mm -hmm. own businesses and um, and just screw everybody. And, And obviously, if people don't like capitalism, thinks, oh, that's capitalism. Right, I screw the little guy, right? And then other capitalists like John Mackey argue that there's no better system for helping the little guy, helping the environment, helping the society than the capitalist system. So you have this basic argument going on, all right? None, none of which can successfully, in my opinion, argue that we're not the owners. We are the owners, period. So I said, to, I said to her, I said, look, so we're the we're the owners because we own it, that would be what we mean by owner. And she goes, no, you're not. And, and, and no, I said, you're not. No, you're not. You're not, you're the, not owner. the owners. I said, well, who's the owners? Well, all of the stakeholders are the owners and that's who management has to respond to. I went, okay, well, let's just take an example. Let's say there's only one person that has all the shares. What you just did, right? What you just said. Yeah. I said, there's one person. And she goes, we are not going there. We are not going there. We are not talking about that. We are, I mean, boom, which means she's had this discussion before. (laughs) Yeah. Totally, totally. We would. Let me just try to understand her perspective. So, what she thinks is that all of the stakeholders, the employees, the environment, the suppliers, the people who buy whatever their product is, the, the shareholders, the executives, the board. Probably many more stakeholders out there. So all the stakeholders own the business together because they are all affected by the business. Mm-hmm. They, especially the employees, I would say, are dramatically affected by what happens with that business, the ups and mm-hmm. downs. So in that sense, in her mind, they own the company. They have a very strong stake in the company. That makes a lot of sense. And it's not the same as literally owning the business. 
No. And, and you can see that the moment you have one owner. I mean, it's just like literal definitions. So. Yeah. <laughs> and those definitions are, are in law. I mean, you, right. they're just, it's, it's like trying I mean, to There's just a reason that you have to have a shareholder vote <laughs> to do things like sell the company. It's because the shareholders own the company and would be selling the shares that they own. Right. You don't go you don't get go to a the employer vote. vote because as nice as it would be to do that, and maybe some companies even would just to see if employees support it or not, they don't have actual ownership that they are actually transferring in law to somebody else. It's, it's right. your definition. Right. It's very, very clear definitions, but her kind of emotional desire was for me to understand, I think she didn't put in these many words, but I would, that she runs the business to the benefit of all of these different groups. And right. that's how it has to work. And that's what I'm saying. That's what, that's how she's thinking. Like right. they all own it because they all have a stake. And I actually, I think that's a really great conscious way to think about. I do too. That's business. really great and really conscious. And, and okay, well, the next step is to load the board with cronies. Now she wouldn't call them that. Why she is that call the them next allies. Step? Why is that the next step? Because she wants, she knows she is in charge of keep of keeping all of these groups happy um, as she guides this company through the years. And so she needs a board of directors who's not going to fight her, who are going to go along with her long-term vision, who are going to provide her with good counsel. You know, she doesn't want a war in the boardroom. She wants to get her way. I want, I am. I am the person who knows the best for all these groups. I am guiding this whole thing as the CEO. That's my responsibility. That's what I was hired to do. I just don't see and how I, that follows. I mean, well, I want a board that isn't going to fight me. And, and I'll tell you how quickly it follows is that she was furious about the idea that a group of shareholders could get together as fund managers with a significant chunk of stock mm-hmm. at four or 5% and force their way onto the board. She did not want to hear about that. I said, well, look at if all these people own the company, you know, what if a guy like Bill Ackman comes along, buys 8% of your stock and gets a seat on the board? She was like, that is the worst thing that these people have no concern for the long-term interests of this company. They just want short-term profits. That's all they're there for, short-term, and that's horrible. And I'm sitting there going, well, yeah, in a lot of ways, I agree with you. Again, that that does happen. She's it not does wrong. happen. It really does. But I'll, I'll also, I've seen CEOs get crazy about people who are shorting their stock mm-hmm. because they're just trying to get short-term profits. And that also does happen. But what's the other side of the coin is that when board of directors get too cozy with the CEO and start paying the CEO $25 million a year so the board can fly around in G5 jets, it might be time for an activist board member who's got the long-term interests of the company in mind, much more than the existing management team who are out there just pillaging the company. And they can. Ownership can impose on a management team its own values. And so when we're talking with you guys, about treating each business like an owner, we're talking about imposing your values on that business. That's your job. (laughs) You are allocating capital to a business basically because you think that this business should exist 20 years from now 
for your for the next generation because it has values that you share in the products, in the management, in something, right? And you and, want it to keep existing and doing what it's doing out there. Right, right. You want it to be that you're supporting it with your money. Right. I mean, you, you can see this around. It's like it's like um, activist investors can do heinous things, but they can also do great things. They can come in and fix things that have gotten too uh, cozy. With, that reminds with me of what happened with Whole Foods. And I want to talk about that next well, time. Oh, shoot. Are we done? This is so interesting. I got to tell you. So I think the the point to take away here, at least for me, Danielle, is that we, I, regardless of what uh, an emotional CEO might say when it comes time to decide who the actual owners are, because they don't want to deal with activist investors, they don't want to deal with a bunch of ignorant people at best, right? That's the best thing. Um, or they want to be pillaging the company uh, quietly on the side, which is the worst view. Um, we do, in fact, own the business, and we have to act like owners, and that can change the world. And, and this is what we we just we talked about and in invested the book. Yeah, is that if each of us voted like a real citizen, somebody who is informed, someone who has values and votes their values, the world would change so dramatically in in public stocks, because man, alive, you have so much power, you guys. We have eighty five percent of the stock ownership in the United States is through fund managers, which means it's your money. Ballpark. So vote it. That's what we're, we're saying. We're going to keep talking about this. Let's do, we're going to do a series here on the stock buyback situation. <laughs> so don't worry, dad. Stock buybacks. Don't worry. Coming soon. Talk lots more about it. Do a podcast near you. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So we'll be back next week and maybe we'll even get to stock buybacks next week, but maybe not. You don't know. Part two of stock buybacks. Might even be stock <laughs> when, buybacks. When we maybe we'll talk about them. Who knows? <laughs> okay, until then, time to go play. Thanks, everybody. Bye. Bye. Hi, guys. Thanks for listening to Invested. If you enjoyed this episode and you want more information, including show notes and more episodes, visit us at investedpodcast.com. There's a special offer waiting for podcast listeners to attend my three day investing workshop absolutely free. So just head to investedpodcast.com. Everything discussed on this podcast is either my opinion or Danielle's opinion and is not to be taken as investing advice because I am not your investment advisor, nor have I considered your personal situation as your fiduciary. This podcast is for your entertainment and education only, and I hope you enjoyed it.